I can turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 uh, this week. If this sounds familiar, it's because that's where we were last week. I just never got around to the text. So, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be sure that blame and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The word of God, brothers and sisters. You know, we've been doing... Um, Daily prayers now for two years or so. On Wednesday, you know, we have this, this thing on Wednesday morning. We ask you to fast something uh, and spend some time in prayer. We send a note out on Wednesday uh, of people that you can pray for. And I love that. I love the opportunity of being able to pray with you, pray for you, and that sort of thing. But I think we need to be honest with each other. Sometimes those prayers can get a little stale. I mean, you know, every morning, I try to do this every morning to go through that list. And a while ago, I found myself going, well, I'm praying the same thing every morning. God, heal this person, take care of that person, give this person wisdom. And so I started thinking, what does this look like to be in prayer unceasingly? What does that mean? And so, you know, what it really means, is we've talked about this before, is that we spend our day in sensitivity to the Spirit in us, uh, prompting us to pray for people, for things. But what do we pray? What do we pray other than the same thing? You know, oh, you know, my, my Aunt Millie is sick. Lord, would you heal her? Uh, how many times are you going to pray that? Now, I, I want to be faithful in that, and that's not a bad prayer. Uh, but I think if we're honest, we can get a little rote with that every now and then. It becomes kind of... So the question I've got for you this morning is how, how do we pray for others? In other words, how do we pray for others unceasingly? Now, when we come for corporate prayer, that's one thing, but when we're in our individual prayers, what does that look like? And so we're going to look at that today. Last week, I shared with you uh, some of my thoughts and how I prepared for a new series. And we found that in Paul's letter to the Philippians, there were four major themes. We're going to pull on each of these threads as we go through the book. Um, and they were unity, suffering unjustly, uh, the tension between works and grace, and the church and the culture. Now, I owe you an apology. Hear me? Because when we were talking about the church and the culture, I made some comments about boycotts, and that was a challenge for some folks. But let me give you some context here, because I've had two sisters come to me very with very much respect and sensitivity. 
say, I don't think everybody understood exactly what you're saying. Here's what I'm saying. Uh, if, if you know personally of a company or a corporation uh, that is doing something that you consider ungodly, I would support you 100% if you decided not to do business with that company. Uh, I do it myself. There are companies that I have a moral objection to, and I just won't give them my business. But when I'm talking about a boycott, an organized protest against a company, and let me talk to you a little bit about Target, okay? Because we all know what happened with Target a little while ago. They put out some, some merchandise that uh, some people thought was insensitive, and there was this organized boycott. And the next thing that happened was there are people not just picketing Target with signs and that sort of thing, and there's all this, this angry stuff going up on social media, but there were people going into the stores and knocking down the displays and confronting the employees. This is not Christian behavior. Uh, so, you know, what I'm talking about when, I, when, when let's avoid boycotts is let's avoid this, this angry protest, organized, we're marching against this, we're doing this, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, we will admit that in those types of situations, somebody has stirred the pot. And I've been talking to you for a long time about people telling you what to be angry about. Not too long ago, people told us we should be angry at Chick-fil-A because they had become woke. And that started with a guy that put up a tweet saying, did you know, this was just two months ago, that Chick-fil-A just established an officer of DIE, uh, diversity, inclusion, and equality. And that went up, and it got popular. And an hour later, he put up, come on, folks, aren't we going to boycott this? Next thing you know, he's got a half a million hits on that tweet. And there's an organized boycott against Chick-fil-A because they made this woke move, except... Chick-fil-A is incorporated in Atlanta, Georgia, and the state of Georgia requires that office in, in that corporation, and it's been there for over three years. And so we get people stirring the pot, and don't allow the pot, the pot to be stirred for you. Don't allow somebody to make you angry over something. Uh, so we should not be supporting ungodly causes. Nobody's going to say, Oh, you know, let, you know I, I don't think you should not, not boycott the church of Satan <laughs> because there's obviously something wrong there. But, but let's do it the way Scripture tells us to do it, being people of peace, being people of mercy and love, not judgmental people. So I hope that's clear. Um, it, you know, I'm very happy to dialogue with you if you want to talk more about that. But that's my, my, my perception on boycotts. And the problem that I have with it is angry people becoming angry crowds and then doing things that just are not just godly but can be dangerous. So we're going to spend some time in each of these things. And obviously when we get to church and culture, it's going to be a bit more interesting. So all this is characterized by the overall theme of Philippians, which is grace. And we see grace right there in the beginning in chapter 1, verse 2. And we also see it at the end, it bookends the, the, the book at uh, chapter 4, verse 23. And we're going to see the fullness of God's grace demonstrated right in the middle of this letter to the Philippians. And that is Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, this will only make sense in light of another verse of Scripture in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let me paraphrase Paul here in 2 Corinthians. God's grace is all you need. God's grace is all you need. Let me go even further. God's grace is the only thing you need. And, and this is going to become apparent uh, when we begin to understand the fullness of God's grace. If we can embrace this, if we can understand this at that moment that we stand before our Lord at the precipice, at the edge of eternity, and realize that nothing that we had on earth, nothing, nothing will help you in that moment. Nothing that you've done, nothing that you've owned, nothing that you've believed will help you whatsoever. It has no value, nothing other than the grace of God. Now, if we get that, if we understand the eternal implications of all of that, then we'll also understand that we should be able to give up, to lose everything around us other than grace. And this is why our series is called The Loss of All Things. And our first lesson is small and mighty, same as last week. And Paul's going to give us a, a clinic. He's going to give us a case study on how to pray for other people. So we're going to see three prayers that Paul utters here for the Philippian church. We'll see a prayer of blessing in verses 1 of 2. We'll see a prayer of thanks in verses 3 through 8. And we'll see a prayer of intercession in 9 through 11. So let's take a look at this prayer of blessing in verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, Notice the first thing, this letter has kind of a co-author. It's Paul and Timothy. Now, Paul, Timothy quite probably was kind of like a secretary uh, to Paul, writing letters as his dictation. But back then, that meant a little bit more than just being a secretary who took dictation. Someone in Timothy's position was expected to add, uh, sometimes to make suggestions, uh, sometimes to participate in the writing of a letter or a document. Now, Paul wants to make clear that Timothy's not just there with them, but that he's a vital, important part of Paul's ministry. And we'll see that grow as, as Paul's relationship with, with Timothy grows as well. So, secondly, notice this. Paul doesn't introduce himself as an apostle. And he usually does in his other letters. Uh, he, 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 he and Timothy are servants of Christ. Now, the word for servants here is douloi. It comes from the Greek word doulos, which no matter which way you shake and bake, it means slave. It means slave. Now, that word has baggage today. And we've got to be careful not to allow that baggage to influence what we think about it. Uh, so back in the first century, it doesn't mean the same thing that it means today. And so the Philippians would read this letter to, to say that Paul and Timothy were owned by Jesus Christ. Christ was their master. 
They belong to him. And Paul is wearing this not as a, a pejorative, not as, as, uh, as a blemish, but as a badge of honor. And it says much about our self-centered culture today that those words have become offensive to so many. And we hear that. We shouldn't be slaves to anybody. But what does Scripture say? We're either going to be slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. So it doesn't carry the baggage it did back then. And the recipients he's writing to are the, the, the saints in Philippi. Now, what Paul's trying to say here is there's some unity. There's some union here. There's a oneness here. We all belong to Christ together. And he's careful to mention those in charge and those who are charged with serving as well. So there's some structure in the church at Philippi, but there's equality there as well. So after, after expressing a little bit of humility by setting aside the, the apostle thing and saying we're all slaves, and after establishing the unity between Paul and Timothy and the church, while recognizing that there's still some structure in place, Paul says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got to tell you something. For many years, I would read a line like that and go, let me get to the meat of the letter. Nice greeting. Dear Timothy, comma, whatever. Okay? But there's something here that we need to look at. Paul prays this blessing of grace and peace. And he acknowledges where that blessing is coming from. They are the exclusive, exclusive purview of Jesus Christ, of God the Father, and his only son, Jesus Christ. And while this is one of those verses we may kind of rush over before we get to the meat of the letter, linger for a moment and look at what Paul did. <coughs> Excuse me. He has this prayer. He begins a letter by praying perhaps the greatest blessing that he can pray other than salvation for their souls. He prays for grace and peace. Isn't that what we're all looking for? Isn't that what all the turmoil of life is about? We're looking for some peace. We're looking for some grace. We're looking for a little bit of mercy. Paul starts a letter about saying, let me just give you this because I've been praying for you and I pray God's grace and God's peace would rest upon you. Now, it's an incredible prayer, but then he does this. He gives us a prayer of thanks, a second prayer, a prayer of thanks, starting in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, this is not uncommon. This was a very common first century greeting uh, to mention prayer to the gods, small g, for the recipient. Paul does so, but he says that this prayer that he's praying is to my God, capital G, Elohim. There's not just any run-of-the-mill God that, that Paul is praying to. It, it, this is the one true God, the God who has saved Paul, the God who has saved the believers in the Philippian church. Paul's not claiming ownership. He's not claiming exclusivity for God. What he's saying is, I pray to the only God worthy of worship and praise, the one I love, my God, and my Savior, and your God, and your Savior as well. And as usual, Paul takes just a standard greeting that everybody would recognize and uses it as a gospel opportunity. You don't belong to God, you probably don't understand this. Talk to one of the people in the church. <laughs> so he does this blessing, and, and then he turns to his readers, and he encourages them that in verse 4, they are always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. 
And once again, Paul kind of conforms to the customs of the day. It's common to tell someone you pray to the gods all the time for their welfare. But Paul turns it on its head and transforms it from a standard greeting into something more sincere, more than personal. His prayers are to the one true God on their behalf. They're not only constant, but it's a joy for him to be able to do this. It's a joy for him to be praying for them. It's just like Paul was standing in front of them, and he grabs their hands, and he looks into their eyes, and he, do you know what joy it brings me to pray for you? Dripping with sincerity. You've got to be a blessing to them. And we know it's sincere because God, well, Paul tells them why, verse 5. It's because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's a joy for Paul to pray unceasingly because they're together. They're working together. They have a common mission. They have a common faith. And all of those prayers lead to an assurance that Paul gives them. Verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is incredible. There's a ton of theology in here. And we could spend months unpacking it all. It's frequently quoted, but you've got to keep in mind that it comes in the context of Paul expressing his thanks for the witness and the testimony of the Philippian church. That they're working for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of the gospel. And all that leads Paul to assure them that their efforts are the evidence of their salvation. And behind this is the idea that even the efforts that they're making, the work that they're doing and proclaiming the gospel, are the result of God having transformed them. There's been a change in them. And it's obvious. It's, it's evident. God has saved them. A work that God, listen, God has saved them. A work that God has worked on them unilaterally. Something that God has done for them and to them. There's freedom in that if you stop to think about it. God is the one who began the work. And look at this. The you there, watch this, is plural. It's not singular. The work that began in them. This has implications that we need to think about. The work that began in them, in the church, in all of us, will be perfected. And what that means is that the kingdom of God is going to come in its glory. Just as God says it will, he will use the church to bring about his kingdom here on earth and for all eternity. It's not about an individual being saved. It's about the hand of God using the church to accomplish his will in all of creation. Now, it only becomes individual, so we can take it personally when we realize that by God's grace, we are in the church, we are already part of that kingdom that he's going to establish. God began to work in them, in us, and it is a process. There have been huge debates over this. It's not complete yet. It won't be complete until Christ returns. Praise God. 
Because I don't know about you, but I realize I'm not perfect yet. Amen? And that God says, even though I'm not perfect, and maybe you're not either, that that work will be completed in the kingdom that he establishes. I like that. There may be bumps. There may be stumbles along the way. But the work God started will be finished by him. It's not dependent upon on how well we perform. Dependent on his word, his promise, his faithfulness. Completion of that work in our place in eternity based on Christ's work on the cross, brothers and sisters. Not our work here on earth. God will perfect us. But listen carefully. He does not expect us to perfect ourselves. Matter of fact, we can't. He's going to do it for us. And the good news, the good news is that all that heavy lifting has already been accomplished by God's only son, Jesus Christ. We go to heaven based on Jesus and his sacrifice. Meanwhile, we have the opportunity to show the world that we've been changed, that we're people set apart, that we have been transformed, that we are new creatures, that something supernatural has happened to each one of us. See, and that's exactly what the Philippian church is doing. They're putting God on display, putting their transformation on display. And Paul is thankful for that outward demonstration of that change that's happening in the Philippian church. Then he gets deeply personal, verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So aside from this spectacular outward demonstration that the Philippian church is putting on display, they have partnered with Paul. They partake of the grace with Paul. That that word means what you would think of it means. It means that they share the grace. And it's been a huge blessing for this apostle. Again, keep in mind the context. Paul's in prison. He's been chased out of nearly every town that he's gone into in Macedonia. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been given the lash. He's been given the rod. And every step of the way, the Philippians have supported him, prayed for him, shared with him, and partnered with him. And watch this. They're a very small church. Some people go, oh, WBF is small. We were at um, we were in an event uh, several weeks ago. And, uh, we, you know, we had one of our tents sent up, and we had all of our folks showing up. We were sending people home because we had more than enough help. And somebody came over, and they had all good intentions. They said, oh, I always thought you were a small church and older people, and you've turned out to be the powerhouse that showed up here. (laughs) And all I could do was say thank you. But we need to think about this. We need to think about this. This small church in Philippi, quite a bit smaller than we are, has had this incredible impact on Paul. And, you know, the size 
doesn't have anything to do with God, what God's going to do in and through us. Amen, somebody say. Let's think about David and Goliath. <laughs> okay, so we've got this small, mighty church in Philippi working together. And what they've done is they've given the gospel a firm foundation in Macedonia and Greece. And Paul has his deep affection for them because they've been such a blessing to him when it seemed like, when it seemed like the whole world was against him and nothing was happening. The church of Philippi was there saying, we're praying for you. We're supporting you. In verse 8, Paul says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So this partnership has produced this deep and meaningful prayers of thanks that come pouring out of Paul's heart because they've blessed him. Because they've blessed him, he turns around and blesses them. But he's not just personally thankful for them, and we need to see this as well. He's thankful to God for their involvement in his life. He's not just saying, I'm thankful for you, but I'm thankful for what God is doing through you in my life. And this leads to Paul's next prayer, which is the third prayer of intercession, starting in verse 9. This is Paul pouring out his heart to God, and and he shares his heart's desire for the Philippian church. Uh, Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. This is beautiful. He knows that they're already loving, that they're doing a good job at that, but he wants that love to continue to grow. And this is not warm fuzzies that Paul's looking for. He's not looking for a a fond feeling and a little funny smile on his face when he thinks about the Philippian church. It's a mature love that he wants for them. It is informed by Scripture. The love is characterized by Scripture, and it is one that discerns, one that comes, what the word means is a deeper knowledge of. This is a love that comes from a deeper knowledge of the Word of God and knows the difference between godliness and worldliness. Paul prays that prayer based on Christ and awareness of the Scriptures, but not just an awareness of the Scriptures. He prays for a love to flow from them that is applied, that is acted out based on the Scriptures, according to those things that Christ taught. And Paul wants this for the Philippians, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So he wants them to approve. And in this context, he wants them to be able to distinguish, listen, what is excellent, what is better according to the scriptures so that they can insofar as is humanly possible, so that they can be pure and blameless when Christ returns, so that they can be, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And here we see this prayer request, that these believers live in the righteousness that comes from Christ alone, not in their own righteousness, so that they can be filled with the fruit, the results of a relationship with Christ, and the results of that filling, the results of that filling are that they're a more famous church. The results of that filling 
are that they're nicer people. The results of that feeling are that they're richer people. Uh, The results of that feeling are that they have a bigger stage and more lights and so on and so forth. The results of that feeling are to the glory of God. The purpose of the church is to glorify the Son, to bear the message that God gave us. Paul's intercession on behalf of the Philippians, they're so filled with the righteousness of Christ that it brings glory to God. Amazing. So those are three prayers. See this prayer of blessing? Paul prays for grace and peace. I, I, I just think that's a fantastic prayer. Yeah. When we don't know what to pray for somebody, we can always pray for grace and peace that they experience the grace of God and the peace that goes beyond understanding. And there's a prayer of thanks. And Paul's thankful for the Philippians' steadfastness. It's a godlike attribute. They've stuck with him, but their bond isn't simply some sort of mutual affection, mutual admiration. They're united around the gospel. So Paul thanks God for them. And so we should understand that we can be thankful for the presence of others in our lives as well and what God might be teaching us through it. Now, if, if we understand that, we can be thankful for everybody around us because God is, intends to teach us something through it. Well, that, that can be a little life-changing. We can be thankful for the blessings that others bring us, but we can also be thankful for the lessons that we learn from those who aren't necessarily a blessing. We can find a way to be thankful for every individual that we encounter, for every person that enters into our lives, Not necessarily thankful for what they did, but thankful for what God shows us. Then we begin to pray for people around us in an all-new way. That kind of shows up in this prayer of intercession. It's deceptively simple. He prays that they be filled with the righteousness of Christ and that they live for the glory of God. So, what have we learned here? How can we pray for others effectively? You know, this is where we have to put some conscious effort to this because our prayers can turn into a recitation if we're not careful. So we can pray, we can pray a blessing. We can pray a prayer of thanks. And we can pray that those around us can live for the glory of God. I like that. And I love you guys, and as I pray for you, that becomes my prayer for you. I pray that you're praying the same thing for me. But what do we do about the ones we don't want to pray for? What do we do about the ones that have hurt us? What do we do about the ones who have betrayed us? What do we do about the ones that we carry scars around because of their presence in our lives? And I think, again, I want to be candid with you. I sometimes have a hard time praying for those people. Oh, I've got prayers. <laughs> yeah, God smite them. You know, I love that word. Okay, I'm waiting for thunder and lightning to come down out of the sky, rocks to fall on them. They're, they're, they're like Wiley Coyote. <laughs> you know, bombs are going off, rocks are falling on them, all these things are going on. So 
So how do we pray for these people? Well, you know, Matthew 5.44 says we should pray for our enemies. Yeah, I wish he hadn't said that. <laughs> but there's, there's a secret here. There's gold in this. How do we pray for those that have wounded us, for an individual that betrayed us? We struggle. I still struggle some with this. But the more, the more I try to listen to Paul, the more I see that that struggle has created for me my own self-designed prison. Ah, I lock the cell door with my anger, with my frustration, with my disappointment. And it stays locked as long as I hold on to those things. And I'm finding, I'm not perfect at this. Don't hold me up as a model. But I'm finding that when I begin to pray a blessing on the whole situation, when I begin to give thanks, not, not, not for my pain, but for what I've learned. And when I begin to pray for that person to live for, listen, the glory of God. I can hear the tumblers in that lock begin to change. The door begins to open. And God then takes a situation in my life, an unpleasant and an unhurtful situation. I want to point a, fa- a happy face on this. It's painful. And he begins to use it to set me free. See, I think the other person's the one in prison. And it's me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died to set us free. But he also died so that we could have the tools that we need to live a life that brings him honor and glory. And one of those tools is our prayers. When our prayers convey grace and peace, when they're filled with thanks, when they're characterized by desire to see all the people around us live for the glory of God, then the Son of God is honored by them. And the amazing thing is, try this. Because I know as soon as I said somebody who hurt you, everybody had a picture of somebody in their mind. Try praying a blessing on them and see if you don't get a blessing back. When we begin praying those things for other people, God begins to give us the blessings that we're praying for them. doesn't matter whether or not they're receiving them. Amen? What matters is where our heart is, our posture is before God. See, this is the transformation that we're going through. This is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is what we put on display. How can you bless that person who hurt you? Oh, boy, I can't do it on my own. This is Christ in me. This is the gospel working itself out in our lives, step by step. And that work, that work that goes goes on in your heart right now will be completed and perfected when we stand in glory. Amen? Let's take communion together. Understand that as we do this, we're united with the Church of Philippi. (laughs) They're part of the kingdom. We're part of the kingdom. One day, we're going to stand before our Father in heaven with them, giving praise and glory and honor to him in all ways. This is something we do together. 
it's something unique to the church. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. We will hand out the bread, and then we'll take it together, and then we'll hand out the, the juice, and we'll take it together. So spend some time in prayer. Prepare your hearts. Think about what I just said, because you can start that process right now. You can start turning the, the, the issues on its head of those people that have wronged you. Jesus broke the bread. And I, I, I love that moment because, you know, I, I just picture him. This is extra biblical, just my opinion. But I just see him looking at the 12 and holding up the bread and saying, this is my body. And then looking back at them and going, you get this right. This is my body. This, this is the body of And he says what we're about to do is going to make that clear because we're going to become one in this little act of obedience that we follow. And you're going to know what that means in about three days. <laughs> Take a knee.
So even in this, this Last Supper, there's a, a process involved. And Jesus puts it on display. First the body, first comes the sacrifice, uh, then comes the blood, then comes the cleansing. First comes the sacrifice, then comes life. And so as, as they complete the process, it begins another process. As we recognize the sacrifice that Jesus made, as we recognize the cleansing that we experience, as we recognize the life that we have in him, then we begin, begin that process, that walk of sanctification. Now, the scriptures promise us that, that when we recognize the sacrifice, when we confess our sins, when we recognize that Jesus is Lord and Savior, when we confess our sins and, and put our faith and trust in him, uh, that we will be transformed. And that's what happened to those people in the room. It didn't happen immediately for them, but praise God, it happens immediately for us because they had to wait for the Holy Spirit. We don't have to wait. When we confess our sins and we profess our faith, the Spirit fills us. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean that we're done. They weren't. I mean, you know, they step out into Jerusalem and this, they put that transformation on display. They begin preaching the gospel. 3,000 people come to the Lord. But I, I mean, all I got to do is read the book of Acts to see that they fussed with each other, they argued, they stumbled. They didn't get everything right. But in the end, they stood as one. In the end, they were willing to sacrifice everything to be with Christ. And that's exactly what all of them did. So the process began with the sacrifice, and then the process is culminated, that, that initial transformation is culminated with the blood which cleanses us the sacrifice gets us there it pays for our sins but the blood brings us into the presence of the father and while we remain here on earth that process continues what paul was talking about we're not perfected yet but we will be so when jesus says take and drink he's saying wait do you see what happens Take a drink. Father, we give you thanks. Thanks for your word which guides us and instructs us, Father, which keeps us in line. Father, we thank you for every bit of it. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the unity that we feel in moments like these, Father, knowing that there will come a time when we stand in eternity when that unity will be complete and perfect without a flaw, without any bumps, without any struggles. Meanwhile, Father, we thank you for your grace, which ushers us through those bumps and struggles that we have while we await glory. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Rise, let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. 
Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week.